Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Project. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and this podcast is a step-by-step action plan to help parents protect and prepare their children for the future. Thank you for joining us. This is episode number 25, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and kids media expert, Dr. Rob Ryer. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, we want to tell you that each episode builds upon the preceding ones. So to get the most out of the episodes, we suggest that you listen to them in order. Also, as a guide for you, episode one through eight provide important foundational information. And starting with episode nine, we begin to introduce specific tools and strategies designed to help you protect and prepare your children and family for the future. With the inner IQ, which stands for inner integral qualities, being introduced in episode 12. And we really recommend that you listen to all the inner IQ episodes if you can, because the inner IQ provides parents with an essential framework they can use to help understand and guide their children's healthy development. Now, in our last episode, we had a great conversation with Julie Herzog, director of the Pacer National Bullying Prevention Center. Julie is a nationally recognized leader in the area of bullying prevention, and she provided us with some really excellent information about how parents can help protect their children from bullying. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, Dr. Bryson is a New York Times best-selling author with Dr. Dan Siegel of The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and The Yes Brain. She is a child development specialist and a pediatric and adolescent psychotherapist who conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. Today, we'll be talking to Tina about her important new book with Dr. Siegel, The Power of Showing Up. And we'll be getting her insights on four crucial building blocks of a child's healthy development, which Dr. Bryson and Dr. Siegel call the four S's. And those are safe, seen, soothed, and secure. So let's get right into it. Tina, welcome to Live Above the Noise. We're so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with y'all today and to really kind of wrestle with some ideas that can be impactful for a lot of families. That's great. And I think a great place to start this episode would be just uh, reading from something that was in your book. And I was really struck by in the welcome section of your book, you actually say in our book, The Yes Brain, we answered a question we received from parents all the time. And that question was, what are the most important characteristics I should emphasize in my kids? Now, in this book, we answer a different question. And that question is, what's the single most important thing I can do for my kids to help them succeed and feel at home in the world? That is so in keeping with Live Above the Noise. And your answer to that is show up for your kids. Could you explain to us to start here, what do you mean showing up for your kids? I'm so excited about this book because there is so much parenting advice out there. There are lots and lots of parenting books and lots and lots of information to consume that parents feel like they need to consume in order to be good parents. And in this day and age now, this idea of hyper parenting, going above and beyond sort of the basics, but feeling like our kids need to be in travel sports teams and we need to sign them up for all these enrichment classes. And in fact, there was a study that came out recently that showed that families who are not affluent, families who live in poverty or even in lower income brackets, think also that this is the ideal and they're not able to do it. And that is not what the science supports. So what I mean when I talk about showing up is that we don't need to do all of that. You know, I even think helicopter parenting is too passive of a term. That's just hovering. And that's not what parents are doing now. It's much more intrusive. I I like to more think about it as like, curling parenting where we're brushing the ice so that our little children don't have any little bumps or any resistance in their path, right? Right. But showing up is the idea that's based in, well, let me say it very simply, and then we talk a little bit more about sort of the science. Simply what showing up means is being present. And what that means particularly is that what we need most as humans 
that best integrates and develops our brains and keeps us mentally healthy and socially and emotionally intelligent. And having that sort of feeling of equanimity, like things are right in the world, the thing that we most all need as mammals is connection. Yeah. And connection can't truly happen without presence, without really showing up in the moment for each other. So the science that this is based on, I think, is really fundamental. And again, I like the idea of saying, look, we can talk about all the parenting content and all this stuff that's out there. But the research is really clear that we really can boil it down to this one idea. And that is based on decades and decades of research that's been done in many cultures all around the world that says that really one of the best ways we can predict how well we all turn out is whether or not or to what degree we've had secure attachment with at least one person. And what that means, or the way we want to think about that is by talking about mammals and how attachment, our attachment instincts that are wired in our brains as mammals, fundamentally is about when we are in distress, when we have a bigger emotional response to something, our biological instinct or drive is to seek proximity or get close to an attachment figure that will help us really regulate our neurophysiology. Let me give an example. So you're a chimpanzee in the jungle, you hear a really scary noise or you see a predator coming at you. As an instinct, you are going to run toward a caregiver who will make you safe, who will help you be protected. And when you get to that caregiver and that caregiver gets you safe, your heart rate returns to normal, your stress hormones are released. So your physiology actually changes in that moment. And so at its essence, attachment connection is about safety and regulating our states. So the way that Dan and I like to talk about this when it comes to parenting is what does that mean to really provide secure attachment? And the nice way to talk about that is to say we show up, we show up for our kids. That's great. Of course, our podcast, Live Above the Noise, we define noise as distraction, distortion, disruption, and overload. And it would seem to me that in our world of noise, the idea of connection and being connected and relating to another human being is becoming more and more difficult. So what are your thoughts on that, the way our our world is so dominated by tech media and consumerism? Dan and I were having a conversation recently, and we were talking about the current crisis in our world of particularly adolescents and young adults of having higher rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidality than we've ever seen. Kids are physically safer than they've ever been. But in terms of their emotional and mental health capacities, we're really seeing a crisis. It's truly present. And so Dan and I were talking about this and how there's sort of a frenetic set point of anxiety and fear and worry that pervades our daily lives. So Dan is always uh, so great. We both love acronyms and interesting ways to kind of use ideas in ways that are really easily accessible for people. And so I love that you just used a bunch of D words there, you know, (laughs) and Dan, he said, you know what, the four S's, which I know we'll we'll talk about in a minute, what really showing up means is in some ways, sort of the North Star or possibly even the antidote to, and Dan listed four D's, the despair of school shootings and the violence that we have, the distraction of our devices, the disconnection of not feeling like we belong. And the fourth one, the destruction of our planet and even our sense of safety politically and in our world. And so when we have these four Ds that are constantly pervading our lives and commanding and demanding our attention, then it actually elevates more fear states in all of us. And fear can really get in the way of us really being connected to each other. And so I think now more than ever, the noise, as you talk about it, is threatening what we know we need most in our lives to be well, to have health and wellness. The other thing about that, Tina, is I've been in the classroom from preschool up to the university level for 40 years. So I've been working with kids for 40 years at different ages and stages and noticing the changes that are occurring with them. So the big question I would have for you is, Based on the changes that I have noticed in kids and the changes that other teachers are talking about, which is that a child in this day and age can't go to the restroom, 
uh, Joe Clement and Matt Miles in their book, Screen Schools, and they've been in the classroom 25 years. They said at a high school level, kids can't go to the restroom without putting earbuds in. And the worst thing you could ever ask a kid to do is be quiet and silent. And I'm thinking, what does that mean for the future of children that are being trained and rewired in external stimulation to the point where they can't stand their internal self-reflective skills? Therefore, where do we wind up with the future of parents that don't have that wiring and enjoy or can do that self-reflective behavior? Yeah, I think you're so right on with everything you just said. And I'm a mom to three boys who are currently 13, 16, and 19. And I also am a clinician and I work in several schools and I do a lot of speaking around the world and educators talk to me and say exactly what you're saying. And including that more kids have more difficulty regulating their own emotions more of the time. So we're seeing an increase in duration, intensity, and frequency of kids falling apart. But I also want to make sure that I am focusing attention as well on how many schools I'm seeing stepping up to the plate and starting to use mindfulness and relationships as driving forces in their schools. And so I think training kids to think about how they have power to use their attention to change sort of how their world is, that they are not victim to their circumstances or to their internal chaos and that they can make choices about where they give their attention as opposed to feeling like almost like a drug addict, like they need a pit of stimulation and distraction. And I think these are all ways that we just need to be more intentional. You know, technology and all of the stimulation can be wonderful and connecting if it's used in ways that are thoughtful and intentional. And so I think as parents and as educators and as clinicians and as humans, We all need to be thoughtful about what we're modeling, how much that need to have constant stimulation and pop our earbuds back in or pull up our phones to check something when we're in line, if there's just one person in front of us or those sort of impulses. And I think one of the ways we can think about this is like when we hold our phones in our hand, a lot of the time, our brain almost maps that as part of who we are. And so it becomes an additional appendage that we have to kind of be monitoring Um, One other thing I want to say, Rob, in response to what you said is that what is so incredible about the attachment science and the whole idea of the power of showing up is that it's based on science about how the brain works and how relationships are formed and how they impact how we develop. And so, Mm -hmm. in fact, my mom's a neuropsychologist. And of course, it's my mom. So she's recommending my books. I mean, just obviously have to admit that, um, (laughs) which is, you know, what a good mom should do. But, um, But, you know, a lot of clinicians that I know, including my mom, they recommend the books that Dan and I write, and especially Power of Showing Up, I think will be one for them. Because it really helps us understand how our own brains were wired from relationship and our own caregiving. And and all of the principles we're going to talk about today from the power of showing up are things that are impactful for all of our relationships. So when we talk about the power of showing up and the power of presence to change who we are, that's something I cultivate in my marriage and with my best friend and with my own mother and with my sister. And so these principles are applicable to all of our relationships. Tina, you mentioned how important secure attachment is and how it impacts healthy development. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? So here's the way it works. The best predictor for how well kids turn out is whether or not they've had at least one person with whom they've had secure attachment. And the best predictor for how well we as people and caregivers or spouses or best friends or siblings, whatever, the best predictor for us being able to provide secure attachment to someone else to provide connection and protection to them is not whether or not we had it with our own parents. Thank goodness. And I think you can hear the smile in my voice across um, this podcast here. Um, Because the statistics show about 40% of us did not have secure attachment with our parents. And a lot of people have, including myself, where you had one parent who really showed up for you, who was there predictably saw your needs, met your needs, responded to them most of the time. And another parent who that you had another form of more of an insecure style of attachment with where the parent-child attachment relationship is more avoidant or it's anxious ambivalent or it's disorganized. And so those are three styles of attachment or patterns of attachment that we look at that's in contrast to the secure attachment 
where the parent did not show up for the kid in the way that the child needed to really thrive. And so we can talk about each of those patterns if we'd like. And I love this research because there's so much hope. I mean, there's two kind of paths of hope here. One path is whether or not you had it, you can start making changes as you begin to reflect. So the best predictor for how we're able to do it is, again, not whether or not we had it, but rather whether or not we've reflected on those experiences, made sense of them, and we have what in the research is called a coherent narrative. And what we really mean when we say a coherent narrative is we've looked at what happened in our relationships with our parents or other caregivers that were primary people for us. And we then say, okay, here's what I didn't get, or here's what was really awful. Or, you know, I had a parent who was super critical, or I had a parent who never showed up for me, or a parent who berated me when I had any kind of sensitive feelings, or a parent who was terrifying, or whatever it is. And then to say, okay, here's what happened. Here's how that impacted me. And here's what I know about myself. And here's what was really hard for me. And I had to try to make sense of that. And then to say, what do I know now about what they brought to the table to say, gosh, you know, maybe my mom was really critical, but her mom was really critical. And that was what she learned. Or, you know, I had a parent who maybe was really terrifying and scary and unpredictable, but they had a trauma history. They had been abused as a child or whatever the story is, is to try to make sense of what it was, what really happened, how it impacted us, why it might have happened that way. And then how do we start then being intentional about creating change in our own patterns? Because what we know is that the brain wires from experiences. The brain is an association machine. So let's say, and and this is just an example right from the research, in infancy from 12 to 18 months, we have a sort of gold standard for measuring a parent-child's attachment pattern, and it's called the strange situation. And basically, you have this one-year-old in a room with their one of their parents, and most of the research is done with moms. There's some with dads, but in this case, I'll just give an example with a mom. So the mom is in this strange room in a laboratory, maybe at a university, and is asked to get up and leave the room. So the baby is in this strange situation in a strange room. There sometimes is a researcher in the room for part of it, and sometimes the researcher's not there. So sometimes the baby's alone in this room, and sometimes there's a stranger in the room. And the parent is asked to leave and then come back. And one of the things we do is we sort of watch what the child does. But the most important part is watching what we call the reunion behavior. What does the baby do when the parent comes back in the room? So one of the patterns of attachment we've talked about is this avoidance style of attachment. And in adulthood, it's called dismissing. What happens then is the parent gets up and leaves and the baby is playing with some toys on the floor, perhaps. And the baby looks fine. The parent leaves, the parent comes back in, the baby doesn't cry, the baby doesn't reach for the parent or show the parent that they're upset at all. So the parent might go, hmm, it looks like this baby is really secure and happy. But when we use physiology measures, we know that baby actually is in a stress state. Mm -hmm. It's a mammal that's very vulnerable at one year of age in a strange situation where their caregiver just left. So it's biologically stress-inducing. But this baby does not reach for the parent, does not cry, does not say, hey, that was stressful, or I'm in stress, I need you, come back, or doesn't communicate that. Because the way these attachment patterns get laid in our brains is already by 12 months of age, this baby has figured out what they should or should not do in order to get the best from their caregiver. So this baby knows if she cries or she reaches for the parent, it's not going to be helpful it's not going to get the best out of their caregiver. But instead, if they just keep playing with the toys and they don't ask for anything, they don't show need, they're going to get a better response from their caregiver. So it starts young, hey? Yeah. Pretty amazing, quite frankly, isn't it? Isn't it? So that baby's brain has already made an association between either if I cry and I have needs and I show them, it doesn't go so well for me. And from the parent's standpoint, as you said, watching this and really not taking in the reality of the situation, are they? No. They're misinterpreting generally what's happening here. And it's because their brains have been wired from their relational experiences to not even necessarily pay attention to or notice or have any kind of importance to the idea of emotion or tuning into the baby's internal world. Because their focus of attention, because of the way their brains have been wired, much more left hemisphere activity is on the surface area of the world, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about, oh, are those toys fun? Those toys look fun, right? So that's where their attention goes. 
But I want to say here that obviously when we start talking about these babies' experiences, and particularly if we talk about disorganized attachment, which is really quite difficult to talk about because it's so painful to hear about, I think we also need to remember the second path of hope that I mentioned earlier. You know, one is that if we reflect on our own stories and make sense of them, we know that our brains change so that we can start providing secure attachment to our children and to our partners and all of that. The second path is that this research is so hopeful in that we know that as we begin to make small changes, because the brain's expectations about relationship and these attachment patterns are wired from relational experiences, the moment we start changing relational experiences, the moment that parent in that room that we're talking about starts going, hmm, I wonder what my baby is feeling. And maybe if I say, was that scary? You know, I'm right here. Or you go over and you just rub their back and you kind of pay a little bit more attention to tuning in and that kind of more emotional connection. The moment we start creating new kinds of relational experiences, the brain starts to interpret those, include those as part of the map or associations about this. And we know that attachment patterns can change fairly quickly, particularly in childhood. Well, that is fantastic news. When we had our episode with Rob referred to them earlier, um, Joe and Matt, who wrote the book Screen School, they told us about what was happening inside the schools. But one of the things that really struck me was that they said that there are kids in school today that will go into school and never actually face-to-face talk to anybody. They'll go from class to class with their device in their hand. After class, they'll go into whatever room it is and they'll be on their device. And so they will have spent the entire day not connecting with anyone. Mm. But what you're saying here is that even a child at any age or or a person at any age can find that if these patterns are changed, that their life is changed in a positive factor. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. And I think we need to definitely put limits on when kids access their devices. Like for my family, unless we're on a road trip that's long, no one's devices are out in the car. We don't have to be talking or or anything like that, but we're going to be looking out the window or creating opportunities or moments to talk. Obviously, no devices come to the dinner table. Like my big thing too is I don't want my kids taking devices into the bathroom. Right. Because, you know, again, it's like another time for that dopamine hit, right? But also a lot of phones, I think the last number I saw was that one in five phones have fecal matter on them. Like that's pretty just disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, creating moments and opportunities and possibilities. There was this experiment that was done where it was like a functional MRI and they were looking at what the brain was going to do with a particular task. I don't remember what the particular task was. But what was interesting is when the person was not doing anything, when they were just sitting there waiting for them to set things up, the researchers were like, there's all this stuff going on that's getting in the way. Like, what's going on? And they realized all that stuff is actually the most important thing that actually happened in that experiment. Mm -hmm. And that was that when the brain is not actively involved in focal attention or doing a particular task, the default mode is able to kind of take over. And this is where our brain sort of meanders and wonders and is curious and makes connections. And this is why sometimes when you're taking a shower or you wake up in the morning before you've really woken up and something clicks or you remember something or those kinds of things. So I think this idea of allowing pauses for the default network to kind of get a chance to explore and not be actively attending to something But I think the idea here is that we know that because this brain is an association machine based on experiences, that once experiences start changing, it can change how the brain fires and wires. And what we give attention to activates and stimulates which neurons are firing. So if we are reading a book with our child at night and we are focusing attention, maybe we pause and say, what do you think that bear is going to do next? Mm -hmm. Or look at that little bird, look at his little face, he looks so sad. What do you think he's feeling? And what do you think made him sad? And as we pause and give attention to those kinds of things, the parts of the brain, particularly in the middle prefrontal cortex, that are a big part of empathy and looking at the mind of another, those are getting stimulated and activated. And so I think this is huge that we create moments for reflection. And this can actually be translated into how we think about discipline and all kinds of other things when it comes to parenting. Well, you know, relative to that default mode, 
Tina, I was experimenting with that for, I haven't done it in a while, but about three times a year, we would do this intensive up in Mount Baldy where we would sit for four to six days and pretty much in silence. But we would take one particular question and we would focus for maybe five to six days straight, 12 hours a day and sit there with the question of what is life? What is love? What is another? Mm. Those kinds of questions. And the only thing that your partner could do was you would give them your question that you were dealing with, and then they couldn't interact with you whatsoever. And you had like 20 to 40 minutes to reflect upon your own question. So if I took the question, what is love? That's all my partner needed to know. And then I'd have 40 minutes to sit in silence, looking at the question of what is love. I did that because I started doing it, and then I noticed, wow, there's a pattern here. Every single time I go do this workshop, I go through the exact same sequence of the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. And the first day is chatter, chatter, chatter. Why not? How come? My life sucks. This isn't good, blah, blah, blah. All my stuff. And then by the second day, it begins to dissipate. And I get bored with myself in my own chatter and come on, you don't need to keep going through this stuff. And then by the third day, I notice that the space opens up where it becomes incredibly quiet inside. And that's a two to three day experience that has happened to me no less than 25 times with the exact same pattern. So for me, that was like, oh, okay. So this is the way the mind is arranged. It needs that space. It needs that time. And so we've created something called PAUSE, the acronym PAUSE, P-A-U-S-E, as a methodology that is similar to mindfulness, but it's different. Mm -hmm. How do you pause on a daily basis? We've also created something called time design, that we, we make a distinction between time management and time design, where you have five types of time. E time and I time and C time, where you have to understand the difference in your time world, mm. the kind of time you spend. Is it taking care of business? Is it toxic? Is it emotional? Or is it compensatory? And so we've been looking at those issues, but I can't say enough about the power of the default mode and how necessary it is for parents to understand. Like, that's the name of the game. You better understand that that is absolutely huge, that you learn how to play around with time and get that kind of default mode in place. I think that's just beautiful. And I think it's so interesting, you know, to think about what's happening in the brain over that time. And I know Dan has had really similar experiences. I hope at some point you'll get to talk with him about that. I think one of the things that we talk about in this book, The Power of Showing Up, is to think about... and. One of the terms in the attachment literature is actually called safe haven, that when we are secure attachment figures, we create a safe haven for our children. And I love that idea. And I think about how regardless of your income, regardless of all kinds of factors that any individual family is dealing with, what kinds of adversity they're dealing with, I think we can be intentional with not a lot of effort about thinking of our homes as safe havens. And we can think about ourselves as a safe haven. So I'll give an example. I was studying at the time how the way we move our bodies, the way that we posture ourselves and breathe and those kinds of things actually totally can change our emotions. So like an experiment I'll do with an audience is have them get up and start walking around really fast and pacing and and gesturing really quickly and start talking really quickly and seeing what happens emotionally and how nervous system arousal goes into a more aroused state and they start to experience maybe some anxiety. And then we kind of sit in more floppy noodle postures and we slow down our breathing. And so we were studying this idea of the way we posture ourselves and move our bodies changes our nervous system arousal and our emotions and behaviors. And I was playing with that and thinking about how with three boys and a dog, you know, in the mornings before school, I was doing that. I was walking around and making breakfast and you need to grab your shoes and don't forget your basketball after school. And, And I was talking like that and moving in that frenetic way. And I was like, oh, that's an easy shift. So I was like, how can I create mornings that are not frenetic, noisy, stressful, chaotic mornings? So a couple things we did that we've stayed with now for 10 years 
is we have music playing in the mornings, but not loud, not crazy music, but just music, like good old James Taylor, Carly Simon, kind of Elton John stuff, you know, adult contemporary (laughs) stuff, not a lot of minor keys, but just having music on it. And the brain is like, oh, music, it must be time to hang out, you know, whatever. And I actually started slowing down the instructions I was giving. So I would be like, hey, don't forget your basketball. You've got practice after school. Or better, I would say, what do you think you need for after school? And I would let my kids' prefrontal cortex get a little rep of doing that kind of thinking. But as I started talking slowly and moving slowly, we actually got ready a lot faster in the morning. So that was an example of like thinking about our home as a safe haven, but also when my kid is falling apart, which sometimes looks like really bad behavior. When my boys were little, like I remember one time, my little guy, JP, was about four or five and he hit his brother and I comforted the brother first. And then this is a discipline moment. It's not okay to hurt each other. Everyone's body needs to feel safe in our home. And so I came around the corner and it was time to deal with this as a discipline moment. But what I did, because first I knew I needed to make sure I was in my own regulated state and calm myself. And this comes from a lot of training and a lot of practice, but to say, okay, my kid's nervous system is in a hyper aroused state. He can't learn or hear anything I'm even going to say. So now is not the time to address the behavior. The first thing I'm going to do is to almost turn his little dial down. I would think about his volume dial turned all the way up. He's just fuming. His muscles are tense and he's gritting his teeth and he's yelling and he's so mad. And so I come around the corner and I'm like, okay, first I'm making sure my volume dial is is at a good spot. And then my whole job is to be that safe haven and to kind of turn down his dial to get him back into a regulated, receptive, open state so he can learn and listen and we can talk together about what he could do differently the next time. So I come around the corner and I say, oh, JP, you're so mad. What happened? Come here. And I extend my arms to him and he just flings his little body right into mine, almost with intensity because he's still mad. And as I provide a safe haven for him and help him slow things down, help him sort of feel the four S's, safe, seen, soothed, The fourth one is secure, which we'll talk about in just a minute. I should define each of those. But as he started to be able to kind of melt into me, and this is what attachment is, remember, is helping regulate our physiological states from being connected and protected. He was able to return back to his typical self, back to a regulated body and nervous system and and an integrated brain. And then we were able to say, hey, you really hurt your brother. You know, what was happening there for you? It's okay to be mad, but you cannot hurt other people. How can you make things right with Luke? And it was an opportunity to have that reflection. And I really think about what we give attention to in the conversations we have with our kids and how we address their behavior is a rep. And when we're trying to exercise, every time we lift a weight, we do maybe a curl. That's a rep that builds that muscle. And that's really what our relational experiences do with our kids as well is that moment that he knows that he's safe, seen, and soothed instead of screamed at, yelled at, that actually makes him feel more reactive, making it less likely he can learn. That's a rep to go from a dysregulated state back into a regulated state. So then his brain makes the association, when I'm in trouble, when I am falling apart and in distress, someone shows up for me and helps me. And what I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in homes and especially in schools is that when a kid cannot help their dysregulation, whether that's because they have slower processing speed or a significant learning disability or whatever it is, that they get into these dysregulated states, it comes out as bad behavior, and then they get in trouble for something they can't help. And so basically, they're like, I have these big feelings, I can't help it, and I'm going to get in trouble, no one will help me, which actually makes them more anxious and more dysregulated, so the behavioral problems actually increase. And when I've worked with schools where I teach them the four S's to help the kid feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure, then the child is like, I have these big feelings, I have really reactive behaviors, but someone's going to help me. Then the kid doesn't feel as reactive and doesn't have that higher set point of anxiety. And so actually the behaviors start to dwindle. It's really pretty incredible. You know, you mentioned music, Tina, and... um... The musical dimension has such incredible possibilities for shifting our state that we haven't explored yet, you know. I think you're right on that. And I think, you know, we know that music helps integrate the brain. And you're probably familiar with Stephen Porges' polyvagal work. And he has this really interesting thing, the listening project, 
where he's taken music and taken all of the lower tones and the bass tones out and tried that with autistic populations and found that a significant number of them, the social engagement circuitry sort of gets activated when the lower, deeper, what he calls more threatening tones are removed. And so the social engagement circuitry starts to come on and kids are able to make eye contact and do some things like that that they typically wouldn't. So I think we are just on the very tiptoe precipice of possibilities. Music is so fundamentally integrating or possibly disintegrating in the brain. So Tina, I know that we talked about safety there and you mentioned the four S's. And I just want to clarify for our listeners that these four S's are the key to showing up for parents. And I'm wondering if you could go over them a little bit for us, just to give our parents an idea of how they could apply them in their own parenting situations or their own lives. Yeah, actually, this stuff is super practical. And it's the kind of thing that as we get reps, and as we practice doing it as parents, it actually becomes more automatic for us. But we know that secure attachment helps kids have all these great outcomes, better mental health, better leadership skills better relationships throughout childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. And this makes sense. If you have the kinds of experiences with your caregiver where your brain has made the association, if I have a need, someone's going to see it and show up for me, that has an impact on the kinds of friends and partners they choose throughout life. And we don't have time to even get into all the good outcomes that come about in terms of having secure attachment. So how do we provide secure attachment to our kids? And the four S's is my favorite way to think about that. The first is safe. Now, people are like, of course, I know I need to keep my kids safe. But what I want to really talk about is the idea of first do no harm, that there are times as parents where we actually are the source of our child's fear. So this is really, really powerful. And and sometimes it's in big, big ways, like, for instance, with the disorganized attachment, that if you have a biological circuit that says go to your caregiver to help you survive and stay safe, but your caregiver is the source of your threat or the source of your terror then you also have a biological drive that's saying, get the hell away from what's dangerous. And it actually causes disorganization in the brain. And this disorganized attachment is actually one of the strongest predictors we have for adult mental illness, psychopathology. Wow. So that's big. That's obviously more like abuse. But there are times all the time as parents in just micro moments where we don't help our kids feel safe. Either we yell and we kind of lose control or we're scary or unpredictable or we might grab our kid's arm too hard when we're trying to get him in the car, or it could be even emotionally that our kid shares something with us or they're crying and we berate them. Mm -hmm. So the first is to do no harm. And that really safety is about when you're upset or have a need or you're falling apart or you're afraid, I will show up for you and help you feel safe. So that's the first one. Scene is actually really interesting. Scene is really about how your internal world and what you experience is really truly seen by your parent. Now, we all know the stories of the science nerdy kid who is really a total intellectual and their parent just wants them to be an athlete, right? And so they don't care about that and they push their kid to be something they're not. So that's, of course, part of it. But it's also where the child's inner experience and the way the parent responds to the child is a match. So let me give an example. Let's say my kid wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, there's a spider in my room. I'm really afraid I can't go back to sleep. And I say, spiders are no big deal. You just need to go back to sleep. Quit being such a baby. There's spiders that live everywhere. So that's one way to respond. And another way to respond is to say, oh, it looks like that's really bothering you. And it's hard for you to go to sleep. And I, I understand that. I don't like it when spiders are in my room too. How can I help? So then the child's internal experience and my response are a match. And when that happens, we can create a coherent understanding of ourselves. Or like, I remember one time my niece was over and I was frustrated about something. I wasn't frustrated with her. She was probably three or four, but I was frustrated with something. And she said, Auntie Tina, you mad? And in that moment, I could say, no, I'm not mad. I'm perfectly fine. But if I do that, then she has two options. She has one option to say either I can't trust her to tell me the truth, or I must be wrong in how I understand things. Mm. And children typically have to trust their caregivers because they're safer when they do. So then they start not trusting themselves. So seeing is really about truly knowing your child and where your child has the experience of feeling felt and being truly known. I'm just going to say that listeners to this podcast know that we talk about something called entertainment. 
I love that. I saw that on your website and like, it's like my new favorite word. Yeah, that's something that Rob has been working with and developing for 40 years. And it really is the idea of using your child's favorite entertainment to translate into getting to know them better through the characters they like, understanding those characters, understanding those things. Maybe, Rob, you could just briefly explain entertainment a little bit again to our audience. Well, yeah, given that we're in the digital age anyway, and that kids are spending 90% of their time on their smartphones being entertained, I don't think you can at this point in time, given the nature of digital addiction, say, stop doing that. You can restrict their use, but the bottom line is, given the rewiring of the brain and dopamine levels and what entertainment gives somebody, they're going to continue to do entertainment. They're being trained in loving entertainment because it's a lot more joyful to people and more rewarding than other things. So that's going to continue. So then our point of view is, if entertainment will continue, everyone loves entertainment, where's the opportunity here to use it for self-reflection. And so by choosing entertainment, what you're essentially doing is finding out, personalizing what a child is responding to and loving now, and then taking that information and turning it into understanding the characters, the characters' values, the characters' skills, the hero's journey, what motivates the character dynamic, the plot. And you have all of this world of concepts and ideas to draw upon for the self-reflective process for children. And that can start with stories as early as a year or two years old, where the story then becomes the foundation for understanding the characters, the values, the plot, the themes in the story, and move right into the self-reflective developmental level of uncovering, well, how is that character different than you? How is that character like you? What is that character like? And so forth. So I think it's a really, really rich, rich, rich area of exploration that taps directly into motivation and has far less resistance. Uh, So the door opens up a lot quicker to that kind of uncovering process. Yeah. And that's a beautiful way to talk about that idea of being seen because you know, one of the ways we can think about actual emotional intimacy or emotional connection is through the lens of shared attention. Mm-hmm. So if your kid is obsessed with sticks and they think sticks are the coolest thing in the world and they collect the sticks, I'm not really that interested in sticks, honestly. But <laughs> if my kid is, it is it's, it's an act of love and it's an act of engagement and that idea of being seen to be like, tell me about this stick. What is it you like about it? Asking those kinds of questions. And the moment my child's attention and my attention are joined because we're focusing attention on the same thing, that breeds emotional connection and intimacy. It creates that idea of feeling felt, Mm. which is a huge thing. And I think too, what you're talking about there, a lot of the world doesn't know there's an internal landscape. Yeah, right. And, you know, we even have friends that when my husband and I talk about living meaningfully or living beyond the surface level or living in a deeper way, they don't even know what we're talking about. It's like we're talking in a foreign language. Yeah. And I think what you just said there about entertainment is providing that firing and wiring of cultivating an inner life, an idea that you have a whole world within you. And once you know that, then you know that you have an incredible power to influence and regulate that. So you're not just victim to the emotions that happen to you, Mm. but rather you have a powerful mind that can allow you to see and change what you think and feel and give attention to. So I just think that's a really beautiful way to talk about that second S of scene. Well, thank you. And anybody new listening to this can go back and listen to those episodes, but we talk about creating a story team within your family. And that's kind of what you're talking about is shared attention. How do you all get on the same team to move the child along developmentally and help them build those skills that will allow them to have a fulfilled and meaningful life? Now, the third thing that you talk about is soothed. Could you talk about that a bit? So soothed is the idea that you're kind of falling apart. You're fearful. You're mad. You're really having a hard time. And I'm going to help you get back to yourself again. So. In the story I told earlier, when JP had hit his brother Luke, 
the first thing is I say, you're so mad, come here. He falls into my arms. So they're safe right there. And I say, oh, you, you know, you seem so mad. What happened? And he starts to tell me this story about how he was on the phone with his grandparents, uh, along with Luke, they were both on the phone together. And by the way, I, I have permission from my children to tell this story. But anyway, so he said, we were on the phone with grandma and I was trying to tell a story and Luke kept interrupting and he told the end of the story and I wanted to tell it. That was the best part. And I said, oh, I can see why that would be so frustrating. I would have gotten mad too, right? So that's the scene part. And then here comes the soothed part. And the soothed part often doesn't include a lot of words. Soothed is much more about nonverbal. You can absolutely use words, but the point and purpose of soothed is to help down-regulate reactivity, or I sort of talk a lot about like the nervous system going into these hyper-aroused reactive states or shut-down states. And in that moment, we might be rubbing the back, we might be hugging or holding, we might just be sitting next to someone just being present. But basically, the idea is you're not in this alone, I'm with you. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the idea there. So I'm rubbing his back, I'm taking big, long, deep breaths that he will start to mirror. And so basically, I'm right here with you. The words are really more about communicating empathy. I have an interdisciplinary clinical practice called the Center for Connection. And I created this with lots of different disciplines like occupational therapy, educational therapy, speech and language, neuropsych assessment, and mental health all together because I think that's a whole other talk, but we really do oftentimes just address symptoms and we don't peel the layers back to find out where the nervous system and the other dysregulations falling apart. And I think an interdisciplinary team is really helpful to do that, particularly for young kids. But one of the things that we talk about a lot and that we actually have printed up and around our clinical practice is exactly what I'm talking about here. And, And we do this in therapy and we should do it in our relationships, which is to start with, you are safe. I am with you we'll figure this out together. Mm -hmm. I think that's really the model I try to follow when things come up in my relationships. And so what happens then over time is when people feel predictably most of the time, or at least enough of the time, that someone helps them feel safe, seen and soothed, basically like they're safe, they understand me and they're going to help me. Then what happens is secure, that fourth S. And I don't mean secure like I feel good about myself. What I mean is the brain wires to securely know that if I have a need, someone's going to see it and show up for me. I am not alone to face dangers or sadness or anger or whatever people show up for me. And when we do that, it actually builds and integrates our brain in more optimal ways that supports mental health and social and emotional intelligence and, and all of those things. I know in your book, you talk about it's not about perfection. And so, you know, I can hear parents out there thinking, well, can I really do this? Or how good am I at it? You say it's not about perfection. No one can parent without making mistakes. Rather, it's about letting your kids know that they can count on you time after time to show up. And I think you made the point that even if you get this 30% of the time, was it? This makes a huge impact on a child's life. Is that correct? Yeah, when I tell my audiences, look, you know, in the research, if parents, you know, show up for their kids about 30% of the time, that can promote secure attachment. And my whole audience is like, oh, thank God, like, you can just hear their breath, you know, coming up. Yeah. And, you know, this is true in all of our relationships. You know, you know, I've been married 25 years. Does he feel safe, seen, soothed and secure all the time? No, I'm reactive. I get triggered. I am tired. I'm petty. I'm immature. I make ruptures all the time. And I do that as a spouse. I do that as a parent, as a friend, as a daughter. I do those things because I'm human. And I think that's the third path of hope that we've sort of talked about today is that we can mess up all the time. And the psychology circles know Winnicott's beautiful phrase, the good enough parent, right? And I think if we're predictable enough that our kid knows if they really have a need, someone's going to show up for me, my parent's going to be there for me if I need them most of the time. And the key here is when there are ruptures, when we make mistakes, and we're going to all the time, the key is repair. Mm -hmm. So when there are ruptures, we make a repair, we go to the other person, we go to our kid and say, Oh, I did not handle that in a very good way. What I said, that was really unkind. And I was mad and I let my anger take over. I am so sorry. I know that was scary or that hurt your feelings. And I really wish I had handled that differently. Will you forgive me? Or you say, this is something I'm working on. And thank you for being patient with me and forgiving me. And so we go and we make the repair. And you know, I think there's so much grace there because what happens sometimes as parents, particularly 
we can be immature and we can do and say things that really are hurtful to our kids. And then we might not talk about it, or we actually are so hard on ourselves that we kind of go into a shame spiral ourselves, which actually makes us less present to our kids in the days that follow and make us more likely to kind of flip our lids again. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of Kristen Neff and Germer's work on self-compassion and self-kindness to really just say, yep, I'm human. I messed up. That didn't go so well. I'm going to go make a repair with my kids and I'm going to repair with myself and say, hey, I mess up and I'm human. But I think if we make repairs with our kids, the ruptures themselves with repair, I think, can be really valuable Mm -hmm. because for one, we're modeling for our kids that that's what you do. If you mess up, you go make it right. So we're modeling that. But the second piece of that is that one of the things that we're doing in that moment is we are widening our child's tolerance for dealing with conflict in relationships. So they come out of that saying, gosh, we fought, or there was conflict in that relationship, or that felt really bad, and we're good again. Mm -hmm. So can you imagine if we were perfect and lovely to our children every moment, the world would be a really scary, terrifying place. So I almost think that this humanness of these ruptures and these mistakes that we make communicate to our kids, we're not perfect, so we don't expect them to be. But we do make things right when we mess up. And that in relationships, there will be conflict. There will be difficult stuff. And we can make it through. And maybe even we're closer at the other end of that. There's more intimacy or more trust that's developed. So I think we can even think of these as positive as long as we're repairing. And I have to say, as a mental health professional, as long as we're really not truly hurting our children. And I just think this is important to say, if you find that you really are frightening your children in consistent ways, predictably, not just like a really bad day where you didn't have sleep all night and your kids typically feel really safe with you. That might be just a repair moment. But if you find that you're really frightening your children, you are the source of their fear or their threat, or you're physically doing harm, then it's really important that we reach out for help because it's never too late to start making changes. And if we're doing harm like that, if we go and seek help, we can start getting the support and the healing we need to start showing up for our kids in ways that make them feel safer and more seen and more soothed and then ultimately secure. And it can start changing how their brain is wired. So I think that's important to say as well. And I think also, if I have to look back over my marriage, which is close to 50 years, and say, what's the single most important criteria in my marriage? And it was my wife's ability to repair. Yeah. I said, you know what? I did this. I'm sorry for that. And actually enjoying the self-reflective moment of her humanity to determine what it was that she did that she could fix. Yeah. And I think, wow, what an amazing thing to have in a relationship is somebody that enjoys repairing. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And so, Tina, for parents that are on their own, you know, there's a lot of single parents out there. If you are alone and, you know, you don't have the support of someone else, you can still be that person to your kids. And you can also use these four things to sort of support yourself as well, can't you? Absolutely. So the first thing is we need people in our lives to show up for us. Or we're not going to quite have the capacity to do this very toll-taking work of parenting, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we need to make sure we have people that help us feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And in the book, we actually, at the end of each chapter, have a little area called showing up for ourselves. And it's really about some questions and opportunities. And actually, invitation is a way we think of it. An invitation for us to do some of that self-reflection. You know, in what ways did my parents make me feel safe? And in what ways did I not feel safe? And who has made me feel safe? Who shows up for me? So there's some opportunities there. But yeah, we need people to show up for us so we have the capacity to do it. And then the second piece is that for those of us as parents who are overstressed, overscheduled, overtaxed, maybe you're a single parent and you're working several jobs and you don't have a lot of time with your kids. For those parents who are really stretched, We can say, okay, make sure you're finding time. What your kids need most from you is your presence. It may not be long periods of time, but when you're there, when you're with your kids, show up, be present. Really give your attention to what your child is saying, doing, and who they really are. And then for the parents who think that they have to do everything, and I'm even making the joke now that parents are so competitive and so hyper-parenting to make sure their child is the best whatever that I'm worried that we're going to even start becoming competitive at mindfulness, like my kid's more mindful than yours, you know? 
So for the parents that are kind of either checked out and not present or the parents who are intrusive, the answer to both is show up. What your kids need most from you is your presence. And what we know from the science is that when kids are at their worst, that's when they most need us. When all of us are at our worst, that's when we most need connection. And that's when it's hardest to do it because reactive, angry, yelling states can get really contagious. So this is a time for us to practice being present to our own emotions and calming those down and then being present to our kids. And it doesn't mean buying all the books on all the social emotional skills and and mindfulness, whatever. It might mean just lying next to your child and not talking for a minute and just being patient and waiting and being present in case your child wants to share something with you. So just slowing things down and creating opportunities for that connection. Well, that's wonderful advice. Rob, do you have any final thoughts? You know, my biggest concern is about the changes that are occurring currently with regard to the digital world. So I love the solutions. And I just want to remind parents that having been in the world of business and education, that what we're up against is extraordinary. The partners that have joined forces in creating a world where they're creating the illusion of choice while they're removing it simultaneously. And if we're not careful and we don't recognize that there is no one in that top 3% in the business world that I've come across in 40 years that is really too interested in our inner worlds, they're interested in a different agenda. And that has to do with giving their stockholders what they signed up for. And that's not going to be our inner world. So it's totally, and I mean totally up to us to develop those skills necessary that Tina's talking about, because it's not going to happen. In fact, the incremental increase in digital technology is astounding. And what's on the horizon now is that you won't have to use your phone. You can simply look at it. You won't have to touch it. And we will read your eye movements and tell you what you need. So can you imagine five years from now, as that technology advances, And uh, there is an interesting book called The End of Mind by Franklin Feuer. And he's talking about having been an insider in the industries of technology. He's very, very aware of the big three, you know, and Google and Facebook and Amazon and where they're headed in those industries to take us into the world of no mind, which is that of the reduction of our own inner world and self-reflective skills. So I can't thank you enough, uh, Tina, for your perspective and where you're headed with regard to what parents need. And it's really up to them nowadays to take this advice and act upon it. I love what you just said there. And you know, I'm really lucky to have had an amazing mom. My mom was very young when I was born and she was and is just an incredibly wonderful person. Everyone wants her to be their mom. And she's so you can see she's, she makes a really good therapist. But the one thing I remember most from my childhood is that when I walked in the room, she lit up and I did and still always feel like I am the most important person in the room or my sister and I were, and not in an indulgent way, not in a, in a way where like she wanted her little precious angels to never have anything difficult. But the idea of being present with us as we walked through hard times or instead of having to feel like she had to fix everything. And I think that's one of the things that most concerns me about the distraction of our devices and our technology is that children and babies are really missing out on their parents' presence. And, you know, I think about when I would walk down the street, seeing a parent pushing a stroller without a device in their hand, and even if the babies in the stroller are facing away from them, as they walk down the street, the mom is saying something like, wow, look at that big truck. Look at those big wheels. Oh, it makes such a loud noise. Versus a parent who's pushing that same baby in that same stroller looking at her phone, and that child is missing out on all of that language and all of that joining and that shared attention. And so I think we're going to have to really be intentional about making sure that we are focusing on what's most important, and that is relationships and connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a big thing. We have this analogy we talk about, and that is that if you were underwater and you were in a bubble and you could breathe within that bubble, you'd be okay. You're looking around, et cetera. But you're aware at any moment that if that 
breaks, unless you can swim, you're in real trouble. And I think that the skills that you're helping parents help their children develop and the things that we're doing, we have something called the inner IQ, inner integral qualities. All of those are designed to help parents allow children to break out of the bubble into the noise, which is going to happen in their lives. There's going to be difficulty. There is going to be distraction, but have the internal capacity and the self-identity to deal with those things in a way that allows them to be themselves to maintain their ability to make choices that are right for them and to have a fulfilling life. So I think it's so important, the work that you're doing. Do you have a final thought, Tina, or a takeaway that you want to leave with our parents today? Yeah, I think I would say that any particular issue or behavior or challenge we face as a parent, think about that as a back burner kind of issue. It doesn't mean you don't tend to it. You have to stir it so it doesn't spill over or burn. But relationship and connection and showing up is always on the front burner. So that should be our North Star, our driving force with anything that comes up in our relationships, whether it's with our significant other or our kids, that really showing up and being present at the moment in our relationships is what cultivates wellness. It cultivates brain development. It cultivates connection and wellness. So I think the idea of helping the other person feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure And just our everyday moments is something that will serve us and the people in our lives and the world in general. Well, thank you so much, Tina. It's just been a joy having you on the show. And we really recommend that people get your new book, The Power of Showing Up. It is a wonderful book with just tons of great information and insights. And once again, thank you so much, Tina, for being on Live Above the Noise. Thank you, Tina. Thank both of you. Thank you. And just a reminder, you can listen to us and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and many other podcast providers. So until the next episode, thank you for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes, tips and tools, and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.